It's medical grand rounds time. We're welcoming Phil Adamo today, and I'm, a deli I'm delighted to introduce him today. Phil is our section chief of occupational and environmental medicine and the medical director of that section and their acti clinical activities and also the medical director for our employee uh, wellness program. So thank you, Phil, for joining our faculty. Let me tell you a little bit oh, about Phil. Oh, okay. Well, that was really brief. That that, you said you were going to be brief. So brief. That's enough. <laughs> no, I think they want to know a little more okay. about you, right? He grew up in a suburb of New York City and went to school at Fordham in the Bronx. And he went to get his MD in Tampico and did his clinical training also at UMass rotations. And then was at the Berkshire Medical Center for his internship and residency program. Went into private practice in the town of Pittsfield, and then decided to retool himself and went to get a master's in Wisconsin, uh, got his master's in public health at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and also trained in occupational medicine and got boarded in occupational medicine and turned his career that way, returning to Pittsfield to do some work there. And, and his career then took a trajectory of working across the state of Massachusetts. He's been in each of the big institutions of the Berkshire Medical Center, UMass Medical Center, and Bay State Medical Center, all working in areas of employee health for an academic medical center and focusing on the wellness of the employees there. We were lucky to recruit Phil after his employment at Bay State to come and be with us here, and, um, and that's been delightful. Just a few other quick things. He spent 13 years on the board of directors of the New England College of Occupational Environmental Medicine, and he also was a past president of that. He served on the conference committee of that. He's also been on the uh, various committees and on the board of directors for the American College of Environmental, Occupational Environmental Medicine, playing very fundamental roles. But for us, in addition to his publishing and presenting and getting the word out, for us, one of the biggest things to tell you is that he's focused his efforts on creating committees and councils and working within the organizations to address caregiver burnout and employee engagement. And boy, do we need that. And so we're really happy to have you with us, and we're very interested to hear what you have to say to us today about what's my disability doctor. There are no conflicts of interest to be reported with today's presentation. Please join me in welcoming Phil. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. So first of all, I want to tell you that a lot of my team are here. And Bob McClellan, my predecessor, um, is also here. So I'm a little nervous uh, because he's the guru. OK, ready. I am dedicating this um, presentation to my best friend, Steve Bresnahan, who I have been friend, had been friends with for over 40 years. Um, he was an internist, geriatrician. And um, he just loved life. And um, he and his wife were very involved with the St. Rock Haiti Foundation. Unfortunately, Steve um, died in June uh, from a metastatic uh, glioblastoma. Diagnosed on March 25th and died June 25th. He died after his son graduated from college, his third child. Um, he stopped all treatments. I was taking him to radiation. As a matter of fact, you and I had spoken that day. And um, he could no longer see very well, talk very well, lost his balance. And he said, I don't want to put my family through this. 
And I saw him the day that he died. And um, the young man is with him. He saved his life, diagnosed a murmur. And in Haiti, if you've been to Haiti, there are no services. He was able to get him to the U.S. and have a valve replacement. And unfortunately, this young man died a month before Steve from complications. Uh, he had developed renal failure. So to this, I dedicate Steve, my best friend. And I did that without crying, so thank you. Um, all right, so we're going to start off with a little bit of humor. Um, I hope I do this right. Press, let's see. Where's Rick? Can you help me? Okay. 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 Press. Press. Double click. Okay. Open. Open. All right. I may cut it short. Just save some time. ABC News investigation and it's your money. Millions in taxpayer dollars. The skyrocketing fraud involving workers' compensation. Questionable claims up 24%. Tonight, a contestant on The Price is Right. The problem is she had told work she was injured. This evening, how she's spinning this now to ABC's Cecilia Vega. It's The Price is Right! When you hear those three famous words on The Price is Right, oh, come on now! You do what the man tells you. Fast. Like this woman, Kathy Cashwell. $1,375. But a fortune and fabulous prizes wasn't the only thing Cashwell was collecting. Cashwell was also cashing in three grand a month in workers' comp, claiming an on-the-job shoulder injury left her totally unable to stand, run, reach, or grasp. Here we go. Good luck. But there she is, spinning that big, heavy wheel. Not once, but twice. It turns out the Price is Right double dealer isn't the only one. Bogus injury claims cost taxpayers hundreds of millions a year. Scores of former New York City cops and firefighters in... So, the next segment was about firefighters and police officers who were um, fraudulently claiming um, compensation after 9-11 and were out doing other jobs. I, I, I play this not to make light of workers' compensation. Uh, however, we are pa patient advocates. So I'm a physician just like many of you. And by the way, what's my disability doctor is a misnomer. And it also includes nurse practitioners, PAs, um, and anyone that's taking care of patients. Um, so um, we have to advocate for our patients. However, we need to take a deeper dive. Okay, so I think he's going to try okay. the video. Okay, I did the video. Oh, you had the yeah. video. Okay. So how do I get back to this? And from current slide? All right. Now we, okay, so we did this, we did this. Okay, so Forbes magazine in, in um, uh, uh, 2013 uh, published the causes and costs of absenteeism in the workplace. Absenteeism is going rampant, and we as providers need to understand why our patients want a note to be out of work. I think we need to do more than just write a note. We need to find out why our patients want to be out of work. Are they being bullied or harassed at work? Do they have burnout? Do they have childcare or elder care issues? Are they depressed, often missed? Are they disengaged from the workplace? Do they have a chronic illness that's keeping them from going to work? Do they have injuries at work and uh, out, out of work? Are they job hunting? And the physician's note or the provider's note validates to the employer 
that they are sick? Do they want partial shifts? And we'll get into that on with FMLA. The good news is that physicians, farmers, foresters, and fishers cost the least amount of work in lost productivity. Yay us. Yay burnout. Okay? Um, however, it's not just frontline, uneducated people who are losing productivity. Professionals, excluding nurses, um, managers, service workers, clerical, school teachers. Okay? Nurses are just below that. So there is billions of dollars that is lost due to work productivity. So why is it an issue? Because we all pay for that lost productivity. We um, pay for it in the hair dryer that we use, but I don't have to pay for one, um, and the products that we buy. It's the cost of doing business, and as the cost of workers' compensation and absenteeism goes up, we pay more for the products that we use. So in um, November of 2019, there was an article published in the Journal of Occupational Environmental Medicine that there are seven chronic diseases, uh, which includes depression, asthma, and all of the diseases that you're aware of. And uh, also, those experiencing the stress of daily activities have been found to be associated with disability leave. 130 million Americans with chronic diseases cost more than 2.5 trillion annually. That's a lot of money. And it's more than just money. It's about the very essence of our being. Despite the fact that we may not want to get up in the morning, work keeps us together. It makes us feel valued. So let's focus on illness and injuries and chronic diseases. Now, the other slide was $130 million, 130 million adults. This reference is 120 million, give or take 10 million. Okay, so research estimates that these health concerns can cost a business of 5,000 people about a half a million dollars per year in lost productivity. Think about our health system. We have about 13,000 employees, so that's about one and a half million dollars that we can identify. If they, an individual has a work-related injury, the cost to society is more than $250 billion per year. What about Dartmouth-Hitchcock? Just think about that. So in the article uh, published in July of 2015, um, they looked at the absenteeism of those who had chronic diseases. The results show a burden on society due to functional limitation caused by these diseases. And the recommendation was that employers should look into implementing intervention prevention programs, such as a chronic, chronic disease self-management program to help reduce the cost of associated with absenteeism. And again, I'm not, I mentioned cost because that's what they published. What about our patients? Okay, that's the thing you have to focus on. And is it the employer that should implement the program? Should we as providers be advocating for our patients to be productive and to be the best they can be with functional limitations? I'm gonna give credit to Karen Pike, Mike, and, and Bob, on the return to work, a medical emergency. 
So workers who are out of work for 12 weeks, it's not a long time, have a 50% chance of returning to work within a year. By one year of work disability, the likelihood of return to work is less than 15%. What we don't, what individuals don't understand is disability, which we'll talk about the definition, is no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, okay? So keep that in mind. But our pen is powerful. But let's go back to here to Vermont and New Hampshire. Population of Vermont is half of the ability to uh, half the population of New Hampshire. They have uh, 88,112 uh, individuals uh, who are, are disability and 165,000 in New Hampshire, which is 12.6 and 14.2%. These statistics come from the Institute on Disability from the University of New Hampshire. Now, if you look at those who are college educated, in New Hampshire, it's about 49%. Um, without disability, 68.3%. That's a 19.2% gap. Now, if you look at percent employed with a disability, it's 42%. And percent employed without a disability, 82%. That's a 40% gap. We have the Americans with Disabilities Act, and yet we have so many people that are out of work with a permanent disability. And the recommendations at both the state, federal, and community uh, level, they recommend that we need to invest in evidence-based employment services and supports for individuals. And um, Karen, 30 seconds, um, Vermont has taken a lead on this and has a grant. And Karen is working on the Retain program, and if you have time, after um, the presentation, um, please look at her poster, which was presented at NECOM. So the Redeem Project, Vermont is one of eight states to be given funding from the U.S. Department of Labor to build a work disability prevention program across the state. And uh, we're engaging a lot of partners, uh, doing uh, focus groups to understand where people are falling on work and how we can support not just the workers, but also the Providers don't have all of the expertise for functional limitations. So you bring in physical therapy, restorative therapy, psychological care, um, right? Okay. So uh, she's in phase one, and you may be having a patient that you want to get back to um, work. And Karen, um, you don't make the decision as to whether or not they get into the program. Um, they have um, criteria that the patient must meet. Okay, so look at the statistics again. In New Hampshire, we have been consistent for four years. 51,504 people are on Social Security disability. That's at the federal level, 18 to 64. Vermont, again, half the population, about the same. But 
We all know that everybody wants to be number one, right? Football, baseball. However, you don't want to be number one in the state of Vermont or New Hampshire. So Karen is working on the, with the state of Vermont who has the grant. And I said to her, if Vermont is number two, who is number one? We are, okay? So Vermont and New Hampshire are number one and number two with SSDI prevalence. Um, and the important piece here is we have a high number of those under the age of 35 on Social Security disability. Unfortunately, the two causes for increased disability are opioid addiction and mental illness. Um, so we're not sure if it's the opioid addiction, long and cold winters, or some other factor, but it's a curious phenomenon that up here in a beautiful area, we have high number of individuals with mental illness and opioid addiction. And do we ask our patients about issues with drug and alcohol addiction, and do we really refer them when they have a mental illness? So let's look at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Our medical claims were 15, uh, 115 million. That's a typo. 115 million. Is that unusual for an academic institution? I can tell you that between UMass, Bay State, and a lot of academic institutions, um, it's about anywhere from 110 to 130 million dollars. So right out of the pocket of Dartmouth-Hitchcock, because we're self-insured, we pay to keep our employees healthy. But the cost keeps going up. So that's your health plan if you're on the health plan. So if you're not on the health plan and you've been receiving medical care, you're not in there. Workers' compensation. In 2018, the indemnity was $2.5 million. Indemnity in workers' comp means that by regulation, if an employee is injured and the claim has been accepted, you have to pay for their leave from work, which is about two-thirds of their salary, tax-free, and you have to pay for medical costs associated with that body part that's been injured. And so in 2018, it was that. The medical was about $2.5 million. So again, we're self-insured, self-administered, or not self-administered. We have a third-party administrator, and we pay for their medical costs. And in 2019, do you think we really went down that much with indemnity? No. The, it hasn't caught up yet. Same thing with medical care. We're still paying for bills from 2019. So 2018 is a better number. Again, is that unusual? Um, having been involved with reducing workers' uh, compensation costs by bringing injured workers um, back to work with some capacity has helped to reduce the indemnity. Um, I, I don't know how much of an impact that has had yet. I can tell you, though, that we do make every effort to bring uh, an injured worker back to work, connect them. Because remember, if you're out of work for more than 12 weeks, we only have a 50% chance of getting you back to work. So these are the totals. The costs do not include replacing an injured worker on the unit. And just remember, we hire a lot of temps at a higher cost 
when an injured worker, especially a nurse, is out of work. The third issue is FMLA, more absenteeism. Um, last year, we had 317,531 hours of FMLA time. And approximately 91% of these hours were taken on a continuous basis. So just briefly, by FMLA, a federal law, an employee is entitled to up to 12 weeks of leave and has job protection. In the state of New Hampshire, they don't get paid for that leave. But if they have short-term disability, they do get paid. And the doctor, provider, nurse practitioner, PA, legitimizes that by that wonderful form that we're going to look at briefly, OK? And remember, here, there are also direct and indirect costs, which includes only a 25% backfill. So 91% of people took up to 12 weeks off. I don't have the breakdown. But 12 weeks is a long time to be out of work. I will personally tell you that I had surgery several years ago, and my surgeon filled out my FMLA form and said that I needed to be out of work for 12 weeks. And I said to him, do you really think with the job that I do that I really need to be out for 12 weeks? And he said, but if you get paid for it, why not? Okay? And that really left a sour taste in my mouth. He was an excellent physician. But it told me that he did not understand that my being away from work for 12 weeks, number one, would probably make me feel depressed. Number two, I was feeling useless. And number three is I'm really taking advantage of my employer's entitlement plan. Now, does everybody think that way? I don't know. How long are we out? Two weeks. <laughs> two weeks. Okay? And I took that 90 pills of OxyContin and threw them away. Okay? Used them one day. And I said, 90 OxyContin? So, so what are the regulations that have an impact on the cost? We talked about uh, the, the, the prior three. But we also have the Americans with Disabilities Act, okay, S which states that, again, it's federal law, an organization must determine if an employee can be reasonably accommodated because of the restrictions and or limitations. What's reasonably? Well, it depends upon the size of the organization. So if you're an organization like Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and you have um, a candidate or a current employee who needs an accommodation, you have very little reasonable excuses to keep that person from working. But if you have a company that's got 50 people, that might be reasonable not to be able to accommodate them. Okay, so keep that in mind. We talked about the Family Medical Leave Act. Not only is it for the individual worker, but it is for personal or family illness, family mil military leave, pregnancy, adoption of a foster placement of a child. Now, why was this entitlement created? It was created for bad employers, who if you went out on pregnancy leave and you were due to have a promotion, well, you took off to have your baby, women or a man, you're not going to get that promotion. Or, you know, we don't need you any longer. If you could take off for 12 weeks, we don't need you. We replaced you, okay? That is not good. So there are bad employers. Now, the piece to this is that an employee must have worked for the employer at least 1,250 hours, which is one year of full-time work. Now, disability. Disability is 
defined by the AMA as an alteration in an individual's capacity to meet personal, social, or occupational demands. Social security definition is the inability to engage in any substantial gainful activity. I could put up Aetna's definition of disability. I could put up any insurance company of disability insurance, okay? Who's entitled to it is the social and contractual uh, that is being placed on the employee. So I don't know who our disability insurer is here. Um, they determine what makes us disabled. The question is, what's the challenge for us and what's our role? So it's an uphill battle, and I have a, a rock there. Can anybody tell me what that rock is? Prudential Insurance Company puts this rock up there. It's the Rock of Gibraltar in this little country south of Spain. I was there this spring uh, with my wife on our, celebrating our 35th wedding anniversary. So that Rock of Gibraltar is very strong, and it's very important for the United States. If you can look at that little structure there, if you don't know anything about the geography, okay, Gibraltar is the gateway to the Mediterranean. And we all know what's in the Mediterranean. So there's a lot of spy activity going on up there, okay? And it's in Iraq. It's very secure. During World War II, they built tunnels. And um, the U.S. is still very involved. The other important piece to the Rock of Gibraltar, besides being an advertisement for Prudential, is that it is the number one place for international online gambling. <laughs> Why? Why, you ask? The temperature is cool all the time in that tunnel. And computers need cool temperature. So if you're looking for a job in a small country that faces Morocco, why not? Okay, so with this pen, how do medical providers contribute to the cost of absenteeism? And how do physicians and other providers advocate for their patients and yet contribute to reducing the cost of absenteeism? So the question is, do providers determine disability? After I told you the definition, do we determine disability? I heard no. No. Thank you, Gene. Providers, do we determine disability? No. Are we asked? Yes. Okay. And the issue is, go back to the definition. We don't determine disability. It's a contractual um, determination as to whether or not our patients are entitled to that disability. Our job is impairment. Objective limitations of physiological and psychological functioning, the loss or use or derangement of a body part, organ, or organ function. It's about functionality. Now you may say, well, I don't know about functionality. Well, there is help out there. I know uh, we have OT, PT. We do functional assessments here at Dartmouth. If you can't determine how much your patient can sit, stand, walk, talk, um, then you may need help. And we have some restorative folks here. So focus on what we need to do to advocate for our patient. Although the form states disability, the ask is, 
we request your independent opinion of this individual's functionality. When the insurance company who has to pay the bills wants to know, is this patient, in their eyes as a claimant, unable to perform the duties of the job, they're not asking you, can they be a doctor, can they be a nurse, can they be a, um, a construction worker. They're asking about the functionality. And if you don't answer the question, they're going to send them to doctors like me and my folks here, Bob and Karen, uh, to determine are these individuals entitled to payment. So the other piece to this is because we're a large institution, in OCBED, we assess the abilities of an employee if they, are re if they require restrictions and limitations. And we'll get into that in a minute. We validate the recommendations of the treating provider for restrictions and limitations. Why do, are we checking on providers? Well, I'll give you an example. If you have a patient that has varicella or um, shingles, and they're feeling fine, you want to send them back to work, you do. We have a hospital policy that says if you have open lesions, you're a risk to patients and coworkers. We will call you and say, I, I think it's great you're returning your patient back to work. However, due, due to risk of infectious disease spread, um, we, we can't return them back to work yet. And the opposite also applies. We also are the medical eyes and ears uh, for our HR and employee relations to make sure that an individual can come back to work and, per, and sa perform their job safety, safely. Okay, it's about fitness for duty. This fitness for duty also has a misnomer. It's not just about drug and alcohol use. It's about functional limitations. So, Restrictions, what the employee should not do because of the physical inability. So are they restricted from lifting, pushing, pulling, climbing, bending, sitting, standing, and walking? Limitations, what they cannot do. If you cannot raise your arm overhead because you've got a frozen shoulder, you are limited in doing any overhead work. So it's your call. It's the treating provider's decision that is upheld when there is a return to work or an opinion that the employee cannot return to work. However, it's upheld, but it's not just the end. So let me give you a brief case. It's kind of sad. Miss C was a 50-year-old CNA who developed pain in her right upper quadrant and right lower ribs after removal of a hamartoma in the fall of 2010. Okay, we all know the hamartoma is benign and it's the right side. The reason why it was done is because it was an incidental finding on a chest X-ray ordered because she had left-sided axillary pain. Okay? Got it. All right. So the left-sided pain resolved with trigger points, but the treatment for right-sided pain included nerve blocks and membrane-stabilizing medications. She reported minimal relief, although pain the pain clinic opined that she was doing better. So her primary care provider filled this out for functional capabilities. Number of hours that she can sit, stand, and walk. Total hours per day, sit, stand, and walk. Do you see the zero there? She can never lift any of those weights. She can never bend at the waist. She can't kneel. She can't crouch. And she, can only, she can't even do desk level work. Her associated condition is depression, and her 
um, restrictions and limitations are listed as permanent. Now, I, I see Jean, who's a non-medical person, with her eyes wide open. Okay? So it doesn't take really a lot to figure out by the adjuster, who's a non-medical person, to say something's wrong here. So here's the attending physician's statement of continued disability. She's got asthma, hypertension, depression, a lot of those chronic illnesses, right? She's got tenderness in the right posterior wall. What's her current treatment plan? Medication. Wow. Which medication? Um, and then she is seeing uh, the pain clinic, and she's going to psychiatry. So the adjuster gets that, and they say, well, let's ask Miss C what her, she thinks her functionality is. And there it is. Walk, sit, stand, read, cook, drive, do things with my grandchildren, and I go to appointments. That's directly opposite to what her provider wrote on that form, okay? Did that provider help and advocate for her patient? Anybody? Oh, okay. So, I got to see her because now the adjuster says, well, does she continue to get her disability payments? And they send her to me. Very nice lady. But since she was not returning to work, she lost her job. She lost her health insurance. She was waiting to go on mass health. She gained weight. She developed worsening of her hypertension, became more depressed, required more medications for hypertension and depression, and she developed diabetes. Did we help her? Did her doctor help her? She did everything, functionality. She really didn't need any um, restrictions and limitations. <coughs> so remember, that's a disability payment, and I'm sure that doctor needed to fill out an FMLA form. Do doctors determine if an FMLA, FMLA meets criteria? No. No, we don't. I'm sure you fill out many FMLA forms. Right? Is it FMLA intermittent? So here's that famous form that I will be honest with you and say, when I first saw this form, I thought, oh, my God, what has the federal government done to us now? Okay? So... If you take a, a, a step back, what they're really asking is you are the subject matter expert. You don't have a crystal ball. You have dealt with individuals, if you're the gastroenterologist and you have someone with Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, you know how long that patient needs to be out of work continuously, may need to be out of work intermittently for treatment plans, may have a flare-up. So the important thing here is you need to fill it out. Don't leave it blank. When you leave a section blank, the insurer says, I'm sorry, Mrs. C, we can't approve your FMLA because your provider did not complete the form. And so it delays their FMLA, which is non-paid, and it delays their short-term disability, which is paid. So we need to understand the form, and if there's something you don't understand, ask your patient, because they'll know. It's important, diagnosis. I've seen, I've evaluated forms. There's no diagnosis. And there has been fraud. I had a sad, sad case of a patient 
who had an FMLA, three FMLAs for herself, one for each of her children with asthma, and then she claimed that she had cancer. She didn't. She was just looking to be out of work. And the issue was she was addicted to drugs. And her providers did not pick up on it. So we need to dig deeper when we have someone that needs to be out on FMLA. Here's the intermittent. They need to have chemotherapy. I had a, a review of a patient who had um, cancer and was wanted to work. But her doctor would give her off the, from the day of chemotherapy to a week later. Okay? That's a person who felt connected to her workplace. The part here about frequency, times per week, months, you know, it's, it's ridiculous, but you got to fill it out, okay? Because if you don't, it doesn't help your patient. So there are other solutions. The good news is that alcohol, opioid, prescription pain medication, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine use is going down. Substance use disorders, you know, 57.8 million adults had either a substance use disorder or a mental illness. If you look at the, the number one, alcohol, tobacco, marijuana. Um, we could have a whole conversation on marijuana. Um, therapeutic marijuana, look at the use. It's going up, okay? Uh, medical use is approved here in New Hampshire. Dartmouth has a very strict policy that you cannot work even if you're on a medical marijuana. Um, I think eventually we're going to see a shift because it's going to um, affect um, the workforce. Um, so I came here six months ago, and um, I, I needed to put things in visual uh, fashion to understand where we're going um, here. Um, so I mentioned I was colorblind, so, but I knew that these colors match. Right? Okay. Okay. So our big cost here is the health plan, health plan team. Okay? But look at DH's vision to achieve the healthiest population possible, leading the transformation of healthcare in our region and setting the standard for our nation, achieving the healthiest population possible starts here at Dartmouth. And Mary, you're in our population medicine and occupational uh, oversee our, our, our department. Um, and I think I showed this to you, and I think I got your buy-in, okay? Um, so what, how do we make our population the healthiest they can be? Well, we have help here. Um, so Live Well, Work Well has a personal health coach team, nutrition team, fitness team that help people to get better fit. It's not about weight loss. It's not about your weight. And we have our folks from Live Well, Work Well, the Health Improvement Plan, Marion. Um, and um, we also have Mental Well-Being Team, Steve, EAP. I'm very happy to be a part of both of these teams under Live Well, Work Well. In addition, we have Live Well, Work Well Primary Care. Danielle's here, okay? I think that the Live Well, Work Well Primary Care is absolutely important However, we need to attract those with chronic disease, not because the other providers are not doing a good job. It's just that it's more time-consuming to deal with chronic disease. And um, it limits the practice um, in such a way 
that uh, we can include a lot of these other um, uh, services, including embedded um, um, psychological care and psychiatry. So what else do we do to help keep our employees healthy? We have health and safety team because safety is number one. Okay, we want to prevent injuries. We have to partner with our, um, our safety team. And we have workability. Workability is um, a program where our, we have two nurses, one here, one in the southern region, that helps the employee to get through the workers' comp system, getting them back to work early, working with the providers, both in-house and in the community. And um, that can help lead to a, um, a better outcome for our employees, keeping them connected, keeping them functional, and not going down the spiral of being disabled, depressed, and developing other chronic diseases. I really believe this, and I've seen it. Um, okay. So the case for wellness, high risk to low risk, we need to shift. And do we know that that works? Well, recent experience in health promotion at Johnson & Johnson showed that lower health spending was a strong return on investment. And um, Johnson & Johnson has been doing this since 1979. And I know Bob was very instrumental in getting Live Well, Work Well going in total health productivity, um, total worker health. And Johnson & Johnson has published several articles um, and, uh, on the importance of uh, wellness and health and productivity. <clears throat> um, Johnson & Johnson published in 2013 in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine that hospitalization was one-third of those compared to other company locations. Absenteeism rates went down 18%. Improvement in weight, blood pressure, cholesterol, and smoking contributed to estimated 3 to 5% reduction in overall health care costs. And after a $500 incentive, participation reached 90%, which was up from 26%. And Bob, you know all of these things, right? I mean, you've done it here. You've shown in previous years that by incentivizing people and getting them to the table to do a health risk assessment, to do biological testing, identifying those who may have latent diabetes, hypertension, can prevent the chronic disease impairment and disability. Risk factor reduction from sedentary, 39% to 20.8%. Tobacco use, 12% to 3.8%. We're at about 5% use here. Hypertension, 14% down to 6.1%. High cholesterol, 19% to 5.7%. So here we have it. Live well, work well. EAP, health improvement plan. Live well, work well on the internet. Um, live well, work well, primary care, occupational medicine, and workability. Live well, work well is celebrating their 20th anniversary. That's the brochure in the background. If you're not familiar with it, you yourself can become um, part of it. And we should be advocating to our patients who are Dartmouth-Hitchcock uh, employees to take advantage of all of the programs. There's an app. Of course, there's an app for everything called Manage Well. When I started here, 
with the help of Wendy and Marion, I, I um, um, was able to um, get online and learn it. And I'm connected um, on, to my phone. It counts the steps that I walk. But when I go to do, um, I exercise at um, the BCAA, CCBA, um, it's recorded. And now we're in a walkathon. This was not a good week for me because I was sick. But you get competitive in a healthy way. Okay, we're not going to win a million dollars, but we're going to we're going to win more for our life, right, Pam? Because she's got a program also um, here with uh, art at work. Okay, um, something therapeutic to help people reduce their stress. So there's a button there that says just push there, and you can join. So how do we collaborate with our community physicians and occupational physicians to work together on the same page to keep our patients healthy? The JOEM published articles that have shifted from the epidemiology of health to health and productivity. In the past three years, 130 articles have been published by the Journal of Occupational Environmental Medicine okay, on health and productivity. There is evidence-based medicine that we can advocate for our patients and keep them healthy. And if they develop chronic disease, let's try to reduce the impact of, of um, the functionality by catching diseases early and treating them early. It's all about your patient, keeping them healthy and engaged in a healthy lifestyle. Work is an important contributor to longevity. So, Wow, creating a true culture of health. This is ACOM's advocacy agenda, which seeks a better alignment of health initiatives in homes, communities, and the workplace. But the heart of it is our patients and their families, public health community, primary care, and the workplace occupational environmental medicine. So thank you. Um, and we all know that Derek Jeter was accepted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, well-deserved. I want to know who that one person was that didn't vote for him. Um, um, I, I have to say that I grew up in Mount Vernon, New York. My family was very strong Yankee fans. I lived not far from Yankee Stadium. I am a Yankee fan. Don't hold it against me. Um, but whether you're a Yankee fan or not, um, Derek Jeter, uh, is deserving of respect. Um, and okay. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. And we have time for questions. But I just want to let you know that uh, we haven't shown the code for AV credit today. It's seven J T nine. And it's up here in this guy, but it's seven J T nine. Text to get your student credit. We see your passion, Phil. It's great. Thank you. We really would like to have you here. Some questions for Phil. Yes. I've talked about this a little bit, but um, what is the role of, or what is there to encourage employers to look at the structure of their the work they ask of people and how that contributes to health policy? Yes. How does that work with Dartmouth Hitchcock? You know, 
talk to you about a case of right. a patient of mine whose work here um, did not allow her bathroom breaks and she was in mm-hmm. And it's very hard to know where that goes in the institution and how the institution looks at that, particularly those kind of structure things and also work stressors. They give us the well, work well, lots don't deal with the stress, but what is the institution doing? To, or what are the mechanisms? So that's a great question. So employees have to be treated with respect, and um, we have to start at the top and work our way down to management level and to say this is not the days of slavery, okay? Your, your employees need bathroom breaks, breaks body breaks. And um, I did have a con- connection with... Um, employee relations. Um, again, we, you protected your patient's uh, name, confidentiality, and um, they thought that this was an issue that they had dealt with before, but I asked you to have your patient come forward, and I have not heard from her. And so you have to be uh, active in your own health, okay? It can't happen. I mean, we have issues with nurses taking breaks, and everybody cares for the patient. We've got to take care of ourselves. And the institution needs to support that. So we're working very hard in the department, not only to provide opportunities to live well and work well, um, you've got to advocate for yourself also. And I just saw somebody, I I received a call from another physician about um, this patient, her patient has allergies. And despite all the treatment, they really feel that the carpeting in her office is a big contributor. I've dealt with this before. So, again, I asked her to contact employee relations. They have her patient contact employee relations. That's an accommodation. That's reasonable, okay? Um, so we have to work with our, our, our treatment providers, and to the best of our ability, we will advocate to get those accommodations done. Now, if they're not being done, then the patient needs to keep walking, uh, knocking on the door. So that's what, what we do. But we have to know about it. Yes? And I'm a primary care doc, and so we go through this with a lot of employees. And I really appreciate what that you're saying about the value of work and also the richness of the resources we have here in the well work world. And not infrequently, my employee patients, they, they tell me their work hours, you know, and it's funny people even have a normal 80 hours a week. We all know we work 80 hours a week. And I find myself in sort of a decisional conflict because the last thing I want to tell them is this is one time in this building. And what I really want to say is get out of here, go to CCBA or go somewhere else. And so I just wonder how you balance those things and and the um, tipping point around how many hours people are in the building and how, how many hours people are working. So that's a great question. Uh, I personally believe that anyone who works beyond eight hours a week, eight hours a day, and we know we have 12-hour shifts, we know that there's um, evidence-based documentation that working beyond eight hours uh, puts a risk to patients, and yet we do it. We do it because a lot of employees want to do it, and the hospital tries to accommodate them. 80 hours is too much. The residents, I hear from the the residents working 80 hours a week is crazy, okay? And I know I did it, and I didn't like it, but times have changed. And I'm told, well, there's a regulation now. 
You can't work that many hours. And the residents say to me, who's going to be the first to report our program that they're not complying? And so I, my hands are tied. I think you ha a lot of people work 80 hours a week because they need the money. I think you need to um, say to you, nobody has to work beyond 40 hours. I don't know if there's mandatory overtime in this institution. There's so many salaries. Okay. Right. That, um, that it, and the 40 hours a week doesn't really Right, for salaried people. But is 80 hours a week reasonable? Common. <laughs> it's, it's common. Okay. Uh, um, what, what's that? It's the current culture. So we need to change the culture. Do I work more than 40 hours a week? I do. Do I work 80 hours a week? No. Could I work 80 hours a week? Yes. Um, and when I work more, I spend less time exercising, spending time with my family, all of the things that make me personally um, fit, both psychologically and physically. That's what we need to advocate. We can't create laws and regulations because we ourselves are our own enemy. Okay? Yes? An unintended consequence of the FMLA is that the people that aren't on FMLA are working harder in more hours and getting stressed out mm -hmm. by covering that person? Is there evidence or you know, how to mitigate that? Or Burnout, low morale, it happens. How does that mitigate that? Well, they can't not uh, 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 enact the FMLA because they'll be fined, okay? Um, the, the, the question is, um, do people really need 12 weeks of FMLA? That's why we really need to um, give the time that's needed and have that crucial conversation with our patient and say, is there really a reason, another reason why you don't want to work? I don't think, in my professional opinion, and as your doctor, I don't think you need to be out for 12 weeks. Um, let's, let's explore why is it that you feel that you can't go to work. And let me get some help, restorative therapy. How can we accommodate you at the workplace? Okay, now, I don't know if you're aware of it, in Massachusetts, next January of 2021, you get paid FMLA. Now, it's not free. It comes out of your paycheck. It's another deduction, okay? Employers pay and employees pay. So now, you can get paid for being out on FMLA, okay? We're all gonna watch Massachusetts and see what happens. Because even though you're paying for it, you now get 12 weeks off and you're paid. Karen. Okay. Yes. Thank you. And, and Marion, I don't know if you want to add anything to that because we, we should be advocating as a health coach. Uh, well, I would say it's actually the health improvement program for yeah. 20 years old. The intent is that for longer, but like a workforce is like 10 Okay, months. thank you. But uh, aside from that, um, the intent of the programs that we offer, this is part of the reason why it's a portal now, and you have enough because it's, we're just to provide support and encourage uh, sort of help people say, okay, I want to do this. We're anticipating a little movement challenge because it helps us stay on track. But it's intended to sort of 
to modify what your needs are as an individual and your needs and your needs, right? Um, and so we try to build it to be flexible. So in no way is it meant to be that you have to do your your wellness here in this right. at your work. Really, it's meant to kind of be doing this. And you could do both. You could do both. And, and let's talk about psychological. Oh, good. Um, as a position in our primary care physician, I think that the pulled in many other ways as well. How do you expand this sort of uh, program outside of an institution where there are obvious economic and uh, incentives, um, as well as influence to your employees, um, to the, the general population in the area? So collaboration is number one, letting us know how we can expand it. Um, we're, we're trying to go out to... Um, we're giving more services to the CGP in the southern region. You know, we're, 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 we're spreading our wings. A lot of the hospitals are working in silos, now part of, of Dartmouth Health System. It would be great to, again, expand and involve the community physicians. So, Dave, I know you know about the aging resource center, but just yes. remind people, all of our programs are free. Uh, we all know yeah. when we say, you know, older adults, Anybody over the age of 60, for the most part, can participate in fall prevention programs, Tai Chi, Matters Balance, Caregiver Support, um, and a lot of other programs that really focus on health and well-being for older adults. And that is for anybody in the community, obviously not just for Dark and Hitchcock. So it's a Take great Don College in the back. Okay. Don. Um, I wanted to say something about measuring functional health status. Um, you know, there's the, the big one is SF36, but um, the, the Dartmouth co-op chart that was developed by Tom Lawson, um, Gene Nelson, and Jack Kirk are very um, easy to use tool for measuring and monitoring functional health. And I, I didn't see that on any of the forms that you were just that, that that you were showing us. I was wondering whether or not measurement of functional health is part of your work and. Um, and how are you going to communicate that? So, uh, you, did you want to answer part of that question? Um, well, I am a representative of the Functional Restoration Program. Um, it's a pretty unique program here at Dartmouth. We're very proud of it. We're really trying to um, get the word out. So we are a total, um, total program, total package. We really focus on wanting to get people before they get into this disability status. And we really pride ourselves on getting people out of their teetering on applying for SSDI and getting back to work. So I know um, we're working with Dr. Dent and Karen, um, kind of partnering our functional restoration program and seeing if that can be modeled out in the community to help um, work on some of the things in New Hampshire and Vermont and get people back to work. Um, we, we are yeah, so let me, let me just, can I add to that? So I, the form. Bill was showing was some of the federally mandated yeah. papers, but what we're doing as a system uh, is um, we have an adult screener that we use in every primary care setting um, at this point, and it includes um, Lawson's. Um, it doesn't. It includes some like SF thirty six type questions to be honest, um, but we also include the John Lawson. So, but also to address that, I I do have a form that. Um, so it's uh, Dep um, Department of Occupational Titles, 
sets that work is either sedentary, light, moderate, heavy, and more heavy, okay? And it defines what providers should do. So I get a form that says, uh, can, the, can they occasionally, frequently, continuously, frequently, um, occasionally, or never do lifting, pushing, pulling, and they define the weights. And so I'm trained to understand that. But if I don't know how to do that, if I was in the community, I would use a program like this to give an exact amount of time that your patient can do these things and then see if they can be accommodated. Um, you know, that's important. What we're also going to try in occupational medicine is at pre-placement, if we've identified um, an individual who may have an impairment with lifting, pushing, pulling, is really to get an objective. We'll start with a basic screening in our department and then send them to restorative therapy to really make sure that they can be safe to perform the duty of their job, not to eliminate them, but to accommodate them. And that keeps people connected. I know I'm going over time. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.